Hello and welcome to the Airline Business Podcast, discussing key news and trends in the global airline sector. This time, is the holiday over in Europe as Thomas Cook, Excel Airways France and Aigle Azur all collapse? Virgin Atlantic and its Connect unit come out fighting, while Delta makes a surprise move for LATAM Airlines and Beijing's new airport opens. We also talk Emirates and its long-serving airline president Tim Clark as the airline enters the next stage of its development. My name's Graham Dunn, and I'm joined by my airline business colleague, Lewis Harper. Hi, Graham. How are you? Yes, not bad, not bad. It has been a, uh, a pretty hectic few weeks since our last podcast. It has. Uh, we've talked a lot in the past about, particularly the European market, you see sort of an overall strength when you look at the, the financials for the, for the industry overall. But European market has been prone to carriers falling over around this time of year and, and it's no exception in 2019. No absolutely and, and obviously it's no surprise that this should be a challenging moment it's you know cash flow during the uh, peak summer months for European carriers is uh, is always strong and then it's always been a challenge to, mm. to get that profitability over the uh, over the winter months. Two years ago it was Monarch Airlines Last year, there were a series of carriers, much smaller, but uh, Premier are probably the, the highest profile. And in the space of a few weeks, we've seen three carriers, particularly in that leisure sector, mm. uh, fall over. Of course, the big, big ones, the, the big name of, uh, of Thomas Cook Group. So that's it. We've known Thomas Cook has, has been in trouble for a, a number of years. It's had kind of small windows, maybe, where things have looked a bit more positive. But I think a lot of Thomas Cook's issues can be traced back to some of its investments, um, sort of around the time of the financial crash where they, they took on my travel for example and I think that the debt levels they've accrued since then I don't think they've ever managed to get their cash kind of up to the point where they're in a, a secure position. Thomas Cook is mm. you know a huge huge name it, it is worth saying of course that um, it's not all parts of I've got so Thomas Cook Airlines in Scandinavia they were grounded for a day up and flying almost immediately and Condor the the German leisure airline that they managed to get some, took some protective measures. They've got um, uh, some interim interim bridging loan, which has mm. now been approved by the European regulators. So it remains, and in fact, the, the high street shops have been taken on by a group as well. So, But in terms of Thomas Cook as a model, it was a huge operation. Mm. The repatriation, the UK repatriation effort required to bring passengers back was the biggest since mm. two years ago when it's monarch, but had a major impact and, and raises a lot of questions around in particular, I guess one of the common threads of, and, and we've seen that lots of different airline types have their troubles, but a lot of it over the last two years has been focused around that charter leisure business in Europe. It has, and yeah, just an aside, it was. It, I don't think many people going on a Thomas Cook holiday would expect to be flying back on a Malaysia Airlines A380, but, but that was certainly the case <laughs> for some of the repatriation flights. I think almost the Thomas Cook things are always more interesting to look at the reasons that the weren't behind its collapse mm. i think you know figures show that the, the concept of a package holiday isn't dead as much as you may hear michael o'leary for example kind of trashing it and ryanair have given up on their kind of holidays business um at the same time you know easyjet was an decider uh, looking at expanding that part of their business and you know figures show that package holidays are still popular i think the uh, the issue with um Thomas Cook comes down to some fundamental issues with its structure. Um, it was more old school, I guess, in the way that it, it had a number of shops that it was using to sell its products, and it had taken on a, a lot more as well, as I said, with the um, these acquisitions from a few years back. 
So I don't think this is the death knell for the package holiday. And I think you've, you've spoken to, to, to Tui, haven't you, yes. since then, about that very subject. So Tui, which is the other sort of major competitor, I guess, in that space, or in terms of that scope and size, they've been making very positive noises since we were at the Airlines 2050 conference, which is a, an event that uh, Flight Global helped run together with IATA, Airlines UK, and by UK, an event really focused on some of those long-term issues facing UK aviation. But obviously, Thomas Cook... Um, and and mm. the airline collapse that had been in the UK was on the agenda. Um, I caught up with Dawn Wilson, who's um, a manager heads up the UK part of the the TUI business and on the airline side of it. You know, the, they've rolled out two million more seats. You know, they uh, they see a future in in the package holiday business. You know, when I asked her what she felt, what the difference was over the last four or five years, she talked a lot about the diversifying that that TUI has done in terms of getting into other parts of holidays, you know, whether that is cruise ships, hotels, taking more ownership in those, mm. trying to develop stuff beyond just that traditional week-long, week-to-week chart holiday in a, um, in, a, in a sunspot. And also she was talking about the digitalization, and it's quite an interesting element. You know, I think they try to say that the package holiday of today mm. is actually quite different from, um, you know, I think you might traditionally have thought, oh, let's meet the tour rep and then they go through excursions. It's much more about putting, you know, power in the, in the holiday maker themselves through their app and, and personalising yeah. a bit. So you can see some difference there. And it's yeah. also worth saying Jet2 have also been very, very bullish uh, about mm. their opportunity. And of course, both have seen an uplift with Thomas Cook, um, with customers um, which Thomas Cook can't satisfy anymore. That's it, because uh, yeah, those kind of what we could call ancillary revenues, I guess, building the, the, the bigger business around that concept of the package holiday. I think if you look at Thomas Cook, I think fundamentally, I think it's fair to say, and this has been a theme through airline collapses in Europe in, as we mentioned earlier in recent years, is these, these carriers that are competing on these highly um, competitive routes into very popular um leisure destinations so you know thomas cook was inevitably flying its fleet into you know palma Mallorca, for example all these kind of places where you are competing against um um the the big low-cost carriers who obviously seem to get more powerful by the year and, and i think in that environment if all you're doing if, if you're trying to you know rely on on that kind of airline operation to be a significant part of your income then it's going to be a challenge because you know we all know ryanair they'll go on about it but they do have the lowest costs in the industry um, so for a kind of a legacy firm, that, that, that was a big part of part of the challenge. So yes, it, it does make sense when Tui say they've kind of diversified away from from relying on, on, the, on that being a, a kind of source of growth uh, um, for, for the business. And at um, Airlines 2050, there was a, a lot of elements of the UK uh, strategy and policy coming under, under scrutiny. One of the big topics there was the uh, third runway at Heathrow, which remains... Um, a yeah, a, a long term <laughs> hope yes um, for, for it, or, or dreams when that gets realised who knows in terms of that debate around that uh, it's been quite interesting Virgin Atlantic have been very proactive over the last few weeks in terms of stating their case for predominant role in any expansion in Heathrow and mm. Lewis you had some time with Virgin Atlantic earlier um, during the month yeah I think. Um uh, I was um, Virgin. Obviously, they they kind of launched their A three fifty one thousand services with a flight to New York. I think it was in in late September. But that that was um, happened to be. I may have been coincidence or not, but it was on the day they also announced these these big plans for um, for Heathrow. So it was a good time um, to speak to Phil Mayer, who's their operations chief. Um, 
and yeah, they seem set. There's a lot of ifs and buts, as you hinted at there. I think you know if, I mean, on a <laughs> fundamental level, if the third runway happens, because um, um, as with a lot of things we've seen in British politics, maybe at the moment, um, um, you know, there, there can be uncertainties, and isn't it? You can never be sure that um, something will actually go through to, to, to being built. But if it does, um, the Virgin Atlantic want the UK government to make the a decision on how those slots will be allocated that will work in its favour. I think it says if the slots are allocated in the way they are now, then in their view, it will just boost uh, IAG's presence there and there will kind of be no difference in terms of the balance of power. So for Virgin, they're very much about, and they've said this before, I think, about wanting to be the, the second flag carrier in the UK. So they, they, they put out a plan with, with a whole load of routes um, international and and domestic and we'll come on to that i guess the domestic part in a minute but um it's an interesting one it's, it's ambitious they, they think they've got the fleet plan to deliver it um what's interesting is they currently have slots that they're leasing out at heathrow that they're not using i think that reflects kind of virgin's recent history where they haven't been profitable for a long time they've kind of consolidated their 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 routes um their networks sorry over over the last few years so so at the same time they're saying we want all these slots they're also saying but well there are a few we're not actually using at the moment but i guess, guess their argument is that with fly b as part of the plan or Virgin connected it's now become um they can become a true network carrier and and that that with the right slot decision at heathrow um and with that kind of network being fed in from from fly b or Virgin connectors it is now they can truly become a carrier that that, that can utilize all those slots and and be a competitive force against IAG and they will say that that's one of the government's priorities for the third runway is to to increase competition to avoid having a, a, a too dominant you know kind of airline group at, at the facility there are a lot of ifs and buts yeah. in that and as part of that it's worth worth saying as well that Virgin will which is obviously Stealth as a as a shareholder there's plans the plans to bring it into a or for Delta to bring its two uh, joint ventures across the Atlantic which it has one with Virgin one with Air France KLM to bring that all together under one um, one roof where it are sort of moving ahead so mm. you know I think there's some opportunities there you mentioned it there Virgin Connect um, and the domestic operation I think is uh, Virgin being much more active talking about it. in fact it was being operated under the Connect Airways Group, that's the name of the, or Connect Airways, that's the consortium which acquired it, which is Virgin, Stobart and um, uh, Cypress Capital, I think. But it's now going to operate under the uh, Virgin Connect uh, name and brand. It, it was quite interesting, I had a chance to speak to its chief executive, Mark Anderson, uh, about the plan. And, and I think what's interesting is there was a lot of news about Flybee January, February time as their mm. troubles were mounting. Connect Airways took it over in January, but uh, in February time, but it, it's only in July that they've got their hands on the business mm. as the, once the various processes have uh, have taken place. And there's a lot of work to do, a lot of work in restructuring that um, that flyby operation. They were heavily hit with their fleet. Previously, they've been essentially had too much capacity. Mm. Um, they're talking now about having that a right size that will give them an advantage but it's going to be a few months before we really see um what virgin connect looks like mm. yeah and um i suppose the question i try to ask this phil may you know what happens if they don't get what they want because you know they're making a seems to be making a lot of plans and a lot of the strategy is focused uh, around this as you say i mean at the moment fly b of uh, 
Virgin connectors they'll become have a, I think a couple of routes into Heathrow but obviously you know that's not going to be enough to, to, to feed massive expansion of the of the long haul side of the business so that, that it really is um, it's going to be a really interesting time seeing how this plays out because you know we could you know if again if the runway gets built we could be looking in 10 years time that we've suddenly got this big um, regional operation in Virgin Connect feeding a much you know big network carrier an extra big network carrier at Heathrow which at the moment Virgin Atlantic I think only accounts for about four or five percent of seats from Heathrow so it is um, a relatively small player albeit as you say that they are involved in the, the joint venture um, across the Atlantic so um, so yeah a lot could happen and um, and there, there is no uh, frustrating there's no clear time scale on when the government will make the decision on the slots um, so yeah we'll We'll have to wait and see on that, but it, but it, in theory, it could be um, big, um, a big news for the UK industry and, and I guess across the transatlantic as well, particularly, um, and a, a new competitor on a lot more routes for for, for BA, but um, a lot of um, a lot to play out um, before that. I think for on IAG's part, they haven't said that much. I don't think about Virgin's ambitions. Their focus really about the runways tended to be on the costs, and they're very much suggesting that it's. Um, it's looking too expensive at the moment and airlines will have to foot too much of that that bill so i think that's their kind of focus at the moment anyway <laughs> so you can read much more on the airline stress it was very uh, wide-ranging also there was a lot of discussion around the environment and the impact around that which is obviously very particularly key subject in uh, uk uh, development but you can read much more about that and uh, an interview i did with mark anderson of uh, virgin connect at flightglobal.com after the break, we'll look beyond the UK at other breaking news in the aviation market. The Flight Global team will be out at the Dubai Air Show in November. Visit flightglobal.com to catch up with all the news and analysis from the show. So welcome back, and here we are in our, our new lavish studios of, uh, <laughs> at our... Um, yeah, I mean, some people might call it lavish studio. Some <laughs> might call it a broom cover, but it does the job. But hopefully, the sound is even better than uh, than we've ever ever had before. So um, mm. we actually That's think it matters. is better, bizarrely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the big stories to emerge here, and one of the sort of more surprising moves over the last two or three weeks was uh, the news that uh, Delta was to take a stake in LATAM Airlines Group. Yeah, it's a, a curious story because we. Essentially, looking back, LATAM obviously uh, was, or I think it still is one world, but it's obviously mm. leaving as part of this. But um, so LATAM was seeking uh, joint ventures with American Airlines and IAG, um, fellow one world carriers. Um, that seemed to be making progress, as as a lot of um, you know we've talked before about how joint ventures seem to be growing in importance, maybe even you know, beyond alliance relationships. And I think this this story is is all part of that narrative. Um, that was progressing. Then in Chile, the Supreme Court made a decision that surprised a lot of people. It blocked LATAM's plans for those joint ventures in, in Chile. Um, obviously, um, LATAM is not is not just uh, based in Chile, but obviously having that big part of the, the market um, blocked from being part of the joint venture meant it was kind of back to square one, really. I think initially there was talk that American would continue to, to build that joint venture with Chile not involved, so still with LATAM. But then it went very quiet, and um, and obviously just you know in late September um, we suddenly hear that um, uh, Delta is investing, uh, taking a twenty percent stake in LATAM. Um, so that's the end of those uh, joint venture plans for LATAM with American and IEG. Um, Delta takes a stake. LATAM announces it will be leaving One World, 
Um, Delta at the same time has to um, end its relationship with Brazilian low-cost carrier Gol because obviously there would be uh, competition issues with getting approval there. So yeah, almost overnight we went from this situation where we there may have been a plan for this joint venture to happen along the alliance lines to suddenly LATAM now is getting into bed with a Sky Team carrier um, and uh, and everyone's trying to work out really what this means for the market. It's, so it is, it's, it's been really it's, it, 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 it's been very interesting and, and uh, you know there's a lot of questions as to you know would uh, LATAM follow into Sky Team? I'm not sure there's any any sign of that happening. Mm. It's probably you know one of the other things we have been seeing is airlines uh, looking towards maybe standalone policies. So we saw China Southern. Um, mm exit sky team to pursue that uh, that philosophy so you, it's interesting what what would happen there but as a result you you also have uh, a move to you know for one world and one world carriers who they might look to replace a yes. goal which you know maybe doesn't have that pan latin american mm. uh, presence but is extremely strong in the brazilian market and brazil is a key market that's it. If you're going to be strong in one market in the Latin American region, clearly Brazil is, is the place to be. It has its challenges in terms of the regulatory environment, carriers have to work, work within, etc. But but certainly um, Goal now is in a position where I guess, and there's already, as you say, been um, uh, talk that they're um, speaking to American about a potential tie-up. But obviously LATAM offers that um, more pan sort of mm. regional um, coverage um, so um, I, I'm sure American and IAG won't be won't be happy how this has played out. But as you say, the dynamics around the alliances are interesting. And obviously, just after Delta announced this tie-up, um, it's worth remembering that Qatar Airways are an investor in LATAM. So they've got a 10% stake in LATAM. Um, where to start with all of the uh, complications there? So Qatar is in one world, but I'm not sure it necessarily <laughs> particularly wants to be because um, it's, um, it's not made the, the most positive noises about its uh, alliance membership. And at the same time, of course, Qatar has been at the centre of a big spat with the US carriers, including Delta, about its access to the US market and how it's using Air Italy. So we saw uh, the LATAM Group CEO, Enrique Cueto, um, having a, a press opportunity with with uh, Abguar Al-Baka not long after the Delta agreement was announced. And I'm, I'm, sure, um, I'm sure that was, uh, I, I don't know if, what that's done, but maybe it means that there will be a everyone's happy and there'll be a harmonious relationship over LATAM between Qatar and Delta going forward. But who knows? Who knows? What's, and and, what's and in among, amongst this, Star Alliance, which <laughs> none of those carriers have anything to do with, but Star Alliance is Brazilian partner Avianca Brazil. Mm. That left the yes. alliance in September yeah. um, because of the financial problems which forced it into um, restructuring. That is. That's the third mm. Brazilian carrier that Star has has lost. Varig was the very first one, a, a launch founding member of Star Alliance, mm. before it ran into financial problems. And then TAM joined Star Alliance before it emerged with Land, formed <laughs> LATAM, and they opted for One World. So uh, Brazil is, you know, it's, a, it's an absolutely crucial key market. But the, yeah. you know, there's been. In sort of alliance terms, there's been some real musical chairs, and and we're seeing yeah. <laughs> some more now. Some more now, and yeah, uh, you, could, you the biggest market in Latin America is kind of sitting there without, um, you know, an alliance member. So you look at Azul, for example, now it's got a close relationship with TAP, mm. um, but um, but yeah, at the moment it is um, it's kind of a, an example of a market that um, it could reflect how the wider industry is going. Um, 
maybe only in that mm. in that sense, but um, you know whether the alliance memberships are becoming less important. Um, but yeah, you look at One World, for example, losing that that Latin American coverage. Um, it's not got Chinese airline. So yeah, it's um it, it's a world where there's certainly going to be a bigger mix. I think of how the kind of airlines choose to tie up and, and work with each other in the future. And how that Brazilian situation plays out, we will see. We expect, um, you know, what would be ideal would be if, for example, one of us was heading to Brasilia it in would. a few days <laughs> yes. for a Latin American conference. Yeah, <laughs> conference. yeah it's a shame. But no, no, yes, that, that's where I'm going. So it's the Outer Airline Leaders Forum in Brasilia. Um, it's coming up. So um, we uh, airline business does a, a daily paper at the... The event and obviously we'll be talking to um, to all of the, the key players in this and hopefully trying to make more sense of it. really want to get hold of Paolo Kakanoff, mm. the um, CEO of Goal, because I think they're in a position where I imagine he's getting a lot of phone calls at the moment <laughs> from people um, being very nice to him. And uh, and uh, yeah, at the same time, as I hinted before, Brazil is an interesting market because Latin America is known for having, um, a, a, it's a tough place to, to, to run an airline um, not just because of the, the, the macroeconomic conditions there can be challenging at times, but it, it's it's a region where each country has its own set of regulations that can often be contradictory from region to region. Brazil, for example, is known for for changing its regulations quite regularly. It makes it difficult to for an airline to kind of be confident to establish itself and invest there because you know just uh, weeks ago there there was an effort to. To bring back a regulation that meant all carriers there had to offer 23 kilograms, I think, of free luggage, um, which, if you're running a, a low-cost <laughs> airline, is clearly um, not what you want to, to be happening. But that was blocked by the president. But um, but but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting market from that point of view. So there's plenty to talk about when when I'm in Brasilia with the um, the airline business and Flight Global team. And we we'll, hopefully by the next podcast we'll, we can make a bit more <laughs> sense, of, of, sense of, of everything that I can't promise that <laughs> and in the current issue we've just completed we've uh, had another look at airports one mm. of our uh, regular uh, topics we cover and it's it's an interesting time for airports particularly uh, the second biggest airport in the world Beijing yeah. which is just behind Atlanta uh, a lot of congestion a lot of uh, challenges uh, for airlines to grow in that market mm. Becomes much easier with the opening of um, of a second airport for the city, uh, Daxing. Oh, good. I thought you were going to leave me to pronounce that badly, <laughs> but uh, no. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So the, the second airport's opened. Uh, as you say, it's a, it's a huge, growing market, um, and we're just kind of seeing the early stages of airlines moving their operations there. It seems like it's going to be a big base for China Southern, and I think the the idea is that the airport kind of becomes the, almost the the new airport becomes the kind of the international hub so i think one world are going to be quite a big big presence is there so ba have already mm. moved their, their beijing flights there um on the other side of things it, it is all to play out there really because i think um yeah as with any new airport opening you know airlines aren't just going to want to chuck all of their their flights and um, then long-haul international services there if they're not getting the, the, feed, the yeah. feed coming in so i think from air china's point of view i think they the idea is they will continue to be the the dominant carrier at um the old capital airport the, the the older airport but um yeah there's a lot to play out in in beijing in a market that is just obviously still seeing pretty impressive growth and um and there's a lot of focus obviously on Beijing is the the largest largest airport in China the largest mm. city and you know some of those other big airports which have grown uh, or big cities and points that have grown but you've caught up with um, with another airport in China which 
Yeah. Which is quite interesting to uh, the, the strategies of internationalizing other parts of um, of the of the country. You're right. So you look at Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. I guess as the as the the, the three big hubs in in China where. You know, a lot of airlines want to be. Not always. There's been some challenges, particularly with the U.S. trade spat going on. We haven't seen U.S. airlines necessarily being committing lots of capacity into those, but, but they certainly have established themselves firmly as hubs. I think when you get away from those, um, what you see is, um, and I spoke to Chongqing Airport, um, which is I think in the just about in the top ten in terms of um, of uh, traffic for for, for China, um, but its growth story is, is is amazing. Really, you know, 20 years ago it was barely you know a million passengers a year but um but you know now it's some um, flirting with 50 million so it's it reflects that growth but there's a level of frustration i think from some of those airports is what's not necessarily coming with that is is overseas um one well foreign carriers mm. flying long haul into into those airports and two um chinese carriers necessarily making a success of those those kind of long haul services that they really want to um to you know, boost capacity and really kind of establish themselves as and the, the kind of the wider city, I guess, the wider cities involved as as really international hubs. Um, so you see um, at Chongqing, they've got um, Hainan Airlines is kind of the, the the carrier supplying international services to a few destinations in Europe in in the US. At the same time, we've seen Finnair have been flying there from Europe, but they've they've cut winter flights because it just wasn't wasn't working for them um, and then you look back at a, kind of a similar airport I guess would be um, Chengdu um, where BA you know, attempted to fly there um, and um, stop those services just because they weren't um, they weren't working I think they um, part of the issue is they're not getting kind of the onward travel mm. so that you really need to to make those services work so there really is kind of a, a kind of a gap between and between those kind of top airports and the, the what we'd call the secondary airports in China, which are massive, you know, in most countries they would be, you know, um, yeah, the biggest, you know, in mm. a lot of countries they'd be the biggest um, airport in the country. Um, but um, they're big, but they're, what they are, what they tend to have is a lot of local carriers flying in, short haul regional services, but they're not seeing that that international, real kind of um, intercontinental um, connectivity work. And I think that that's what. Chongqing want they, they they feel that that's coming because the the development of the the economy there means it's becoming more high tech more likely to attract international investment but but it's just not played out yet and um and there aren't many overseas carriers that have made those those kind of routes work so so yeah it's um it's a strange way you don't feel sorry for them and they're they're massively successful airports in their own right but but you know that international they they all want that you know to have BA you know the the, the big international carriers, the the kudos of that kind of happening, flying into flying it. into, but it's it hasn't really happened yet for them. So, so you can read uh, Lewis's piece on that on flightglobal.com now. In the third part, I'm going to be speaking to Max Kingsley Jones about uh, Emirates. Make sure you subscribe to Airline Business by visiting flightglobal.com forward slash airline business. When you do, you'll get all the usual issues in the magazine, plus a special year-end digital-only edition, which is sponsored by CFM International. Well, this month's cover star is Emirates Airline President Tim Clark and our colleague Max Kingsley-Jones. You um, did the interview for us and caught up with Tim. Uh, uh, you've interviewed him many times before, but I mean, this is, this is an interesting time for Emirates, isn't it? Always is with Emirates, but particularly at the moment. It's always great to sit down with Tim. Uh, 
his take on the world, his take on aviation is always extremely rewarding to have an audience with him. He's seen a lot over the years. He's spent half his professional career now running Emirates in some shape or form and he's taken on a lot of uh, challenges over those years and I think no one would disagree that he's built the airline into a a formidable competitor on the global stage so always interesting to hear from him. And for Emirates it's it's a period of relative introspection I guess you know we've had this massive growth but over the last three four years with one thing and another some of that has slowed down a little bit. Yeah the fleet growth has definitely slowed down Uh, they've also been looking at their own inner workings. I think they're very conscious now that they're no longer the new kids on the block. They're a very big global player, but they have some practices that they've had to re-examine and they've been working very hard to strip out all the old back back ends and and bring the airline right up to date with their their global competitors. And and Tim talks about that in the the interview that we uh, will be running in airline business. Is there a feeling this is kind of a, a, a sort of more structural change, a, a more structural shift rather than necessarily being around, uh, you know, in the region, ups and downs of fuel prices has, has quite a big effect on the Gulf carriers, actually for slightly different reasons as it's a, a kind of key engine of growth for their home markets. But does it feel more structural? It does feel more structural. And I think there's several reasons for that. But the key one is they're no longer really the challenger anymore. They are the challenged. They have, as Tim says himself, we're like the champion boxer. We're up there uh, ready for people to take us down. And he you know, points to people like Qatar Airways, uh, the Turks, other players in the region. They're all sort of Emirates impersonators in some shape or form. And he knows that these guys are relatively young compared with him, certainly some of them anyway. And he has to make sure that the working practices at Emirates are right up to date and the products right up to date and that they so they can compete on a, a level playing field. Um, you know, he's not complacent. One thing Emirates has never been is complacent and he makes that clear when he talks to us. And Emirates, of course, they have really championed the, the A380. That's massive aircraft for them, massive aircraft full stop, obviously. <laughs> um, the big news about the uh, ceasing of production of that type earlier this year. How's that impacted them? Was he sort of comfortable with that or how long are we going to see the A380 flying for Emirates? So the Emirates A380 situation is intriguing at the moment because officially they still have a big order book because they're still negotiating um, a substitution order with Airbus which will see A330s and A350s uh, replacing a big chunk of those firm orders that Emirates has at the moment but that's quite a complex negotiation there's engine arrangements in there as well so at the moment um, prior to the Dubai show uh, officially Emirates still have a lot of aircraft on order and We'll, we'll probably see that change come Dubai in November, the Dubai Air Show. But uh, what is clear is that they're planning ahead for a, um, a future with the A380, but a, f- uh, a smaller number. So what we'll see is over the next uh, five to ten years, that fleet will will come down to about uh, 90 to 100 aircraft from a peak of about 115, 120 in the next few months or year. And then gradually that fleet will wind down. But he's made it absolutely clear that the A380 is part of the long-term fleet plan. The aircraft will still be in service in some shape or form in the uh, mid-2030s. So uh, absolutely the aeroplane is around for the long term. But he's also thinking about what happens next because that machine produces um, up to 617 seats Mm. in Emirates configuration and he has to think about the succession plan on that. And there ain't anything out there anywhere near that at the moment. So that's something that's a bit of a challenge for the uh, the Boeings and Airbuses and whoever else of this world in in 15 years' time. And Tim Clark at Emirates has always been at the forefront, uh, one of the airline chief executives who has been at the forefront of shaping the kind of aircraft that are produced by the manufacturers, not at least because they buy a lot of them. 
do you still see him showing a hunger and an interest in what the manufacturers need to deliver? Well, at the moment, his main concern is actually getting today's aeroplanes working properly. So I think his focus is less on future programmes. Perhaps the Boeing NMA uh, is something that he has some influence on. But really, at the moment, his big kind of to-do for the manufacturers, be it the aircraft manufacturers or the engine manufacturers, is to get the aeroplanes working reliably. He feels that the products are being delivered um, and left to the customer to do the final work on. And he, and he says, you know, if that was a, a Rolls-Royce car or a Mercedes car, you wouldn't expect that. You'd expect your car to be delivered and start every morning and, um, you know, not run out of petrol and all the other things. And he's just not happy with the uh, performance he's getting. And he made that very clear, as we reported in the airline business that came out last month. Very, very vocal on that. And I guess one of the things we've seen at Emirates over the last two, three years is maybe a degree of more pragmatism. We've certainly seen that with their relationship with Fly Dubai, the kind of low-cost sister carrier, and they are working much more closely together now. Is that right? Yeah, so there's two elements to that, actually. There's the the sense that it perfect sense it makes for those guys to work together because they're operating out of the same airport. They're both owned by the, uh, the government, so that they are effectively siblings, although the management teams are very clearly separate, and the Fly Dubai brand is very much around the kind of, I wouldn't say low cost, but sort of the budget market, whereas Emirates has obviously has the premium market really in, in mind. However, over the last 18 months or so, they've been putting their codes on each other's flights. That's been going very well, according to Tim, and he very much sees the Fly Dubai Emirates operational integration as key to getting the Dubai International Airport's um, infrastructure capable of, of handling the growth that they expect over the next 10 or 15 years because the new airport, the Greenfield Airport or the green, or the, uh, should we call it the sand-coloured <laughs> desert airport <laughs> down the road, uh, about halfway between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, DWC, Dubai World Central, is not going to be up and running in the sort of time span that originally everyone thought because they've re- they're re-evaluating re-eva- the whole project. So the current airport is going to have to have a, a lot more capacity to cater for uh, Emirates and Fly Dubai's growth ambitions. And then the integration of those two operations, Tim Clark thinks, is how they'll uh, leverage their current infrastructure to make that uh, able to be delivered. And then just lastly, you alluded it to earlier, in November we'll see Emirates' home air show, I guess, the Dubai air show. That's that's always been a fascinating show because there's either been huge orders or you once covered a show where it was just just orders non-stop. Or, or, or it's a bit quieter. What's the sort of the feeling for Emirates in terms of maybe ordering at the show? Maybe more generally at Dubai in terms of whether we're expecting a busy show or not. I think the A330, A350 order, uh, which Emirates is negotiating with Airbus as a substitution for the uh, the big tranche of A380s that are on backlog, that will be central to the announcements at the show. I think also um, we may see some um, s- some local uh, interest in, in orders. Uh, Etihad are probably not going to be spending any money or very little money because you know they're in a restructuring and it's all about consolidation down the road at Abu Dhabi for them at the moment so unlikely to see them spending lots of money we we wonder what will happen with the 737 max we thought that the Paris air show would see Boeing playing that very low profile and then we had the big uh, AAG <laughs> fest with <laughs> Willie Walsh ordering 200 aircraft so we'll see whether that can be repeated i'm sure for the brand's strength and for the um Boeing kind of chance in the spotlight, they will be very keen to get one of the local airlines to 
either confirm or reconfirm their commitment to the aircraft. So perhaps we'll see something on the MAX. But there's no rumours at the moment around that. But then there weren't anything. <laughs> no, uh, we didn't see, we didn't IAG, didn't so. see IAG coming. Yeah. <laughs> OK, Max, thanks for your time. So that's all for this time. You can find links to the stories we've referenced, including Max's interview with Emirates Chief Tim Clark, in the podcast notes. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back again in November. In the meantime, you can stay up to date and on breaking airline news at flightglobal.com. See you next time.